Uh, all right. Uh, we don't have any pew Bibles uh, these days. Uh, they've all been taken out. So uh, get out your phones and we will be reading from Titus. Uh, if it helps you, put it, that thing on airplane mode and uh, we'll be looking back at it several times. It'll also be behind me on the screen. So uh, I will just be reading the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The word of the Lord. All right. So for the next few weeks, uh, we will be here in Titus. And you'll see it's an extremely short book, just those three chapters. And Titus is this young, budding pastor, and Paul is the apostle. He's the one who's written a lot of the New Testament, 13 letters, in fact, that are called epistles. Now, three of those 13 epistles are called the pastoral epistles because they're not written uh, to communities, not written to churches, they're written to individuals. And the individuals that he writes these pastoral epistles to are, you guessed it, pastors. Two of them are to Timothy, and one of them is to Titus. And what we saw even there uh, in verse 3, he calls him his true child. Uh, you'll see this affectionate, personal nature of Paul's language to these young budding pastors again and again and again. Now, yeah, Paul's their boss. He's their supervisor. Sure, Titus directly reports to him. But there's this affection that Paul and Titus share with one another. It's rich. And Titus being called his true son isn't his biological son, but his spiritual son. See, Paul has led Titus to faith, and now Paul is mentoring Titus as a minister. And Titus was a great asset to Paul. He was a Greek. He was a non-Jewish convert, unlike Paul, unlike Peter, unlike the rest of the apostles, who are all Jewish so in some ways, Titus becomes a test case for the gospel. Was the church going to be, uh, was the church going to demand that Titus convert to Judaism culturally in order to join the church? Or would Titus be allowed to be culturally Greek because he's ethnically Greek? Could the church be as inclusive as the gospel was the big question for them as much as it is for us. And you know, Titus in his early days after he was converted, he got some weird looks. He had some awkward conversations with Jews because the church in his early days was largely Jewish. And it was their temptation as it is for us to conflate their culture with their theology. And so Titus plays an important role as a minority in this majority church. And what minorities do now and what they did then is that they force us as the majority to really sort things out between our culture and our theology. 
For instance, we, we may think it's a theological position to have a worship service that gets out at the exact same time every week. We say we think that because it respects people's time. We say that it keeps good order. And God wants us to respect others, right? God is orderly, right? Sure. But it's also possible that those are just cultural expressions and not gospel truths. So you see, you see how Titus, a Greek, would be disruptive, but disruptive in a good way in a mostly Jewish church where he calls Jewish practices into question. And so because of this dynamic, Titus plays a very valuable role in the early church. And for Paul, he's kind of like a green beret. He's kind of like a Navy SEAL. Paul just sends him into one mess after the other. The first mess that Titus gets sent into is the church in Corinth. And if you want to know how crazy uh, Corinth is, just read 1 Corinthians. If you think our church is a mess or even the craziest church you've ever thought of is a mess, 1 Corinthians hasn't beat, I promise. And Titus gets sent there. And now Titus gets sent to Crete. Crete's that little island in the Mediterranean Sea. Some people have come to faith. And now things need to be set in order. So Paul sends him to Crete. And in Crete, Paul thinks that the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. That's verse 12 of chapter 1. I like you all, but I've never called you a liar, a glutton, or an evil beast. So Titus goes to these hard places. He puts things in order. He makes things right. He gets things fixed. But this is going to be tough work for Titus. Titus is going to be really tempted to ask the wrong questions first. Questions revolving about, around what should I do? And those are almost always the wrong questions to ask first. Now, there are practical things in this letter, but they're still the wrong questions to ask first. The right questions are always around who you are. Identity. Not what should I do. Practical. So that's where Paul starts this whole greeting, those four verses that I just read. In fact, Paul thinks this whole idea of identity is so important that his greeting to Titus is longer than every other one of his greetings in the 13 epistles, except for one, Romans. And by way of example, Paul is just saying what's true of him in those four verses is also true of Titus. And if Titus can get his identity figured out, then the practical is going to take care of itself. So you see why this is an important letter for us, don't you? How many times have you heard or said, what should I do around the racial injustice? What should I do about how to deal with all the complications of COVID. And they're not bad questions, but there's just more important questions. The questions of who am I? Start to sound like Rafiki, right? So here what we'll see in these first four verses are three core identities. The servant of God, the ambassador of God, and the beloved of God. So let's start with servant. You see it right there at the very beginning. This is the very first identity that Paul claims, and for good reason. It's likely because it's the most important. And I believe it's first because it's most important 
uh, is, is that humility before God is what needs to be cultivated above all other virtues in the Christian life. And humility, being a servant of God, you can also translate that slave, being a servant, being a slave, is also not just important for the Christian life, but for leadership. See, we're all in submission to God. We do his bidding. But we flip that around and we often try to get God to do our bidding, don't we? Now put yourself in Titus's shoes. His profession is that he's a pastor. To go to Crete, if he can put things right in Crete, he can get a job anywhere. If he goes to Crete, and if he's able to put things right there, maybe he can build his following. Maybe he can get a job at a bigger church. Maybe if he goes to Crete and he does a good job, then everybody's going to love him. It's going to fill the hole in his soul that needs affirmation. If Titus does that, then he needs God to do things for him on his behalf. But Titus is in Crete to do things on God's behalf. He's God's servant. So he's got to adopt this humble posture, this low disposition of a servant of God. And this is going to fit right in. I mean, he's asking Titus to do this, but Paul's been doing it. Paul calls himself a servant of God. And look how Paul humbly self-identifies in other places in the New Testament. One place is 1 Corinthians 15.9. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles, even though he wrote more than all of them. And I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle because I was once a persecutor of the church. 1 Corinthians 15.9. Ephesians 3.8, he says, I'm the very least of not just the apostles, I'm the very least of all the saints. In other words, I'm the worst Christian in the whole church. And you've got 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul says he stands in wonder that he's been deemed faithful, even though he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a rude opponent of the church. And this isn't just being self-deprecating. This is who Paul actually is. See, Paul lives his life in this wonder at the grace that he's received from Jesus. And when you live in your life in wonder at the grace you've received in Jesus, it's not hard to adopt the identity of being a servant of God. But notice how specific Paul is when he tells on himself. He calls himself a persecutor of the church. He says he's a blasphemer and that he's a rude opponent He's very specific about his sinful past. And he's been ratting on himself for the last 2,000 years. He doesn't just call himself a generic sinner. Everyone knows his dirty laundry. Everybody knows about the skeletons in Paul's closet. How about you? Maybe your journey in being a servant of God means that you have to start getting particular about your places of sin and about your past pain. Because you see, if you don't, people are going to whitewash you. People are going to think you're an angel. People are going to think you have it all together. And Jesus is going to be awfully small 
in their view, and you will be awfully big. But let's make an important distinction about this title. Servant of God. Servant of God. Servant of God. Not not servant of the church. Those are very different. In, In many ways, Paul nor Titus are servants of the church. If they were, they'd essentially be this social religious manager. But they're servants of God. Meaning that there's a certain amount of authority that they have. They have this position of possessing authority over the church and over the people in the church. Which is why Paul uses the second title. Do you see it? Servant of God and then you see apostle. Apostle. Now I've got to say something very important about what the New Testament means by apostle. The word apostle wasn't just used in the New Testament in those days. It was a use, it was a common word that used throughout all of society. See, an apostle was essentially a messenger with authority that went somewhere to deliver that message on behalf of the king. So whatever the apostle said really was what the king said. And there really are 12 apostles. It's just the 12 disciples minus Judas plus Paul. And all of them are able to be the the apostles because they had an eyewitness encounter of Jesus. And they were commissioned to lead the church. And then they write the whole New Testament. There aren't any more apostles. Titus isn't an apostle. But Titus does have authority. Chapter 2, verse 15 Paul tells Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. See, Titus had authority. It wasn't apostolic, but it was pastoral. And the place that the authority showed up was in his preaching. Paul says in these verses that the knowledge of the truth is manifested in preaching. Just as that's Paul's call in his life, it's also Titus's. And as a preacher, he's preaching the gospel. He's not peddling some self-help curriculum. He's not building a cult. He's presenting the gospel on behalf of the king of heaven and earth. That's authority. But what about those of us who aren't apostles? (laughs) None of us are. And what if we're not pastors? What kind of authority do we have as Christians? Okay, you get the servant of God piece, but what about this... Apostle Apostle also can mean delegate. It can mean uh, uh, being uh, a a commissioner, an ambassador. Do we have authority? Well, think back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have dominion. Dominion, that's a royal word. That's a ruling word. And they have dominion over all of creation, not because they own it, but because they've been given the job being stewards Stewards to bring about maximum flourishing within the garden. They're made in the image of God, and so are we. And it kind of means like we're little kings and little queens. We have this royal nature because we're made in God's image. That's a picture of the beginning. Authority. And then you go to the end, Revelation chapter 17. It says that we will judge the angels alongside Jesus. Authority. But what about in between? If that's what Revelation is... We judge the angels in the beginning as Adam and Eve have dominion over all creation. What about now? What about now when sin dwells with us? What about now as as creation awaits redemption? Things are not as they should be. Do we still have authority? 
1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, say this. If we died with him, died with Jesus, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign. R-E-I-G-N. Reign with him. We reign with Jesus. It should give us a certain level of confidence. But when you pair the confidence of being an ambassador with the humility of being a servant, what do you have? Well, what you have in our fallen world is that you're destined to fall off one side or the other. You either embrace the identity of being a servant without embracing fully who you are as an ambassador of God, or you just embrace your identity of being an ambassador of God without your identity as a servant of the king. Let me give you, for instance, if you're all about being a servant of God, it's very likely that your life can turn into one big people-pleasing mess. You just fulfill everyone's wishes of you thinking you're serving them. And if that's you, you need to realize that you're also an ambassador of the king, that you reign with him, you have authority, which means that endless people-pleasing in the name of being a servant, has to eventually draw a line and refrain from people-pleasing. You could fall off the other side. You can just embrace your identity as an ambassador of the king. You don't let anybody tell you what to do. You're under no one's authority, and you mask it all by saying, I've prayed about it. This is between me and God. No one can tell me what to do. And if that's you, or tends to be you, you need to realize that you're also a servant. So how can we be confident as God's ambassador and humble as God's servant all at the same time? Sounds impossible, doesn't it? You have to embrace your third identity. You have to embrace your identity being the beloved of God. See, if you look at the end of verse 2, it says, promised before the ages began. Promise before the ages began. And what Paul is saying in just that little phrase is that God set his affection on his people before they ever set their affection on him. Let me put it a little simpler. See, God was in love with you before you were in love with him. I have an old friend that really likes to make people blush. And uh, he likes to find newly married couples. And he asks them a question. He says, who liked who first? And man, it's awkward every time. I've seen him doing it a dozen times or more. Who likes, who liked who first? Well, when he asks the question, I mean, they, they turn all shades of pink and, and, and red. And you can just cut the tension with a knife when he drops the bomb out there. And so eventually, after I've seen him do it several times, uh, I uh, asked him, I said, well, what have you learned? What have you learned after asking this question over and over and over again? What have you learned about dating and marriage and all that stuff? And he said, I've learned that one person's interest is often sparked by the other person's interest. There's something magical that happens when you know someone else is interested in you. You know where I'm going, don't you? See, God loved you first. And he promised to love you before the ages began. And God knew what it was going to take to have you. 
He's going to have to send his only son, Jesus, who's going to be the servant of all servants. He's going to be the suffering servant of God. He's going to be the royal king in the flesh who's going to live, who's going to die, who's going to raise again just to have you. I mean, it's unimaginable, isn't it? The lengths that God has gone in order to have you. And when you see how crazy God is about you, you can't help but reciprocate. I came across a old Google commercial. I don't know if I'd ever seen it. And it's called uh, the it's called Dear Sophie Lee. I mean, is this ringing a bell for anybody, Dear Sophie Lee? And it's real. It's a minute and a half. Uh, I watched it seven times, and I cried all seven. I'll probably cry again. Um, but what happens in the video is that this dad, uh, op- when he finds out that his wife's pregnant, he opens up an, uh, an, a Gmail account uh, for his daughter. And he starts sending her emails. Um, the first one is when she's born. And it's just a picture of, you know, a little baby picture. And then underneath of it, it says, I'm still trying to figure out how to hold you. He keeps writing her emails, you know, emails that she's not reading. Someday she's going to open up this Gmail account and it's going to be, her inbox is going to be full of all emails from her dad. The next one is from her first birthday party. The next one is when she becomes a big sister and he tells her uh, that when you found out you want to be a big sister, you want to name your little brother Salt. <laughs> and then there's one of uh, her when she's sick and her dad says that she, he was afraid he was going to lose her. He sends her one about from their first house. He sends her more that were, were artwork that, that she drew for him. He takes pictures of her vacations, of her lost teeth, of her ballet. And then the last one says, I created this account before you were born. I can't wait to show you all these someday. Brother and sister, God's done the same for you. He's got a whole bunch of snapshots of how he's wooed you. How he's wooed you through the sending of his son, through his word, and how he's gone to great lengths since the creation of the world just to have you. And when you know that you are this beloved, you can be humble because you know how serious your sin was. It was so serious, so costly that Jesus had to die for it. It'll make you humble. But you also be confident. You also be able to lean in to be an ambassador of the king because no one had to twist God's arm to send Jesus on your behalf. It's that kind of generosity, that kind of lavishness, that kind of affection that'll help you not fall off one side or the other. You'll be humble, you'll be confident, and you'll be able to move into great big messes just like Titus. And you'll do so for the sake of the king. Let's pray. Father, you set your affection on us, and um, it's mind-blowing knowing that we've done uh, everything we could uh, to mess that up. But even no matter how hard we try uh, to run from you, you come and you find us. And so, Lord, I I pray uh, that you would woo us 
and you would woo our loved ones. That we might know that we are dearly loved. In Christ's name, amen.